Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center EM Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, we have myself, Craig London, and I'm accompanied by two of my fellow residents. Russell Tregonis. Jeremy Driscoll. This week's show is brought to you by INDs. INDs, prepping your patient for the procedure by saying, don't worry, sir, this won't hurt me at all. INDs. Now let's get on with the show. So let's talk about skin and soft tissue infections, specifically the bacterial ones. That's right. So we get to ignore all the fungal ones, viral ones, and the deeper infections. So this really isn't that important. We only have about 2.3 million ED visits annually for cellulitis. Now, 15% of those are going to get admitted. Out of those diagnosed with cellulitis, one shows that up to 30% were misdiagnosed. So we definitely have a lot of room to improve upon this here. We're going to talk about some of the mimics of cellulitis, then about cellulitis and other bacterial skin infections. We'll discuss history, physical exam, workup, treatment and disposition, highlighting some evidence-based practices on how to best tackle this extremely common problem. Let's start with the history. Uh, Do they have a bug bite recently? Have they traveled somewhere recently? Internationally, perhaps. Water exposure, trauma. Do they have a rash preceding this? Recent fungal infection or burn? Is it itchy? Has it been around for a couple days or a couple months? And have they been on antibiotics recently? Are some pretty important questions I usually ask. And following that, I mean, going through this patient's past medical history is going to be extremely important, too. Do they have a history of diabetes with complications, something like neuropathy, any signs that shows that their diabetes is being poorly controlled and they're having some microvascular disease? Do they have a history of cirrhosis, or are they immunocompromised? And so we'll start off by talking about some of the vascular mimics of cellulitis, which include things like venous stasis, peripheral artery disease, DVT, and superficial thrombophlebitis. What we want to look for here is, are the skin changes bilateral? Because that would be more indicative of a venous or arterial issue. Also, we want to look at their nail health. We want to look if there's any skin disquamation or if there's erythematous plaques around the malleoli. Blood can pool in the extremities and cause warmth and redness that can trick us that we're seeing a cellulitis. So what we should try to do is raise the legs of the patient above the heart and rest there for five minutes. If there's significant decrease in warmth and redness, then there's more likely to be a large vascular component of this problem. Now, DVT and cellulitis rarely overlap. Using Wells criteria for DVT can help. And for superficial thrombophlebitis, treatment for six weeks if cord is more than five centimeters or if that there's proximal saphenous vein occlusion. So some of the other mimics can include things like dermatosclerosis, diabetic myonecrosis, lymphedema, or even contact dermatitis. Now, dermatosclerosis, a.k.a. lipodermatosclerosis, a very easy name to pronounce, obviously. Very. Which is also known as sclerosing paniculitis. I like that one. Who doesn't? These are all kind of different types of inflamed fat or muscle tissue that can cause redness with skin changes. Now, once again, this should be bilateral and can go all the way from the malleoli to the knee. So this is not true cellulitis. This is something we're going to treat more supportively with kind of your classic rice therapy, rest, elevation, ice, and compression. Let's talk briefly about diabetic myonecrosis. It's something that, honestly, I didn't know too much about before I started looking into this. Usually it's a thigh muscle where you have a small area of infarction. It'll present with swelling, pain, and sometimes a little overlying redness. 
usually uh, these are going to be seen in patients with other complications from diabetes. If you get labs, the CK is likely to be normal, the CRP is likely to be slightly elevated, and really for this you just treat with analgesia and anti-inflammatories and encourage the patient not to exercise while there's active infarction. In addition, if the patient has something like lymphedema, they're going to have increased risk of cellulitis. Other things you're looking for are signs of contact dermatitis, where they will have distinct lines from something like poison ivy, a belt buckle, or a watch that they're wearing. Now, regarding insect stings, cellulitis following this is pretty rare, although we tend to see a lot of patients come in with these, quote, spider bites after living in a bed of spiders, apparently. But (laughs) if redness develops immediately, it's probably not a cellulitis. Think more local reaction, like allergic reaction. But if they do develop some redness and concerning cellulitis, it usually will happen a couple days after the initial insect sting. This redness can actually last for seven days. And then finally, if you see any evidence of erythema over a joint, you need to consider bad stuff like septic arthritis or other crystal arthropathies, even septic bursitis, such as something in the prepatellar or the olecranon regions. Now on to the meat and potatoes, and let's talk about those bacterial infections. We will not go on to talk about things like staph scalded skin, scarlet fever, or impetigo. Instead, we'll focus on erysipelas, cellulitis, abscesses, and necrotizing fasciitis. What about folliculitis? I've also always wanted to know what a fruncle is versus a carbuncle, but I just know that, Jeremy, you have both, and they're everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it is a problem I'm dealing with, but, you know, there's good treatment out there. There's lots of support groups, but um, a folliculitis, also known as a boil, one of the plagues, right? It was a plague. It was a plague, yeah. Okay. Many um, people died. Let's not joke about it. All right. <laughs> Too soon. Um, folliculitis is classically linked with hot tubs, and you'll have small bumps or pustules with an erythematous base. You really don't need antibiotics for this. Just try some warm compresses and keeping the area clean and dry. Uh, a furuncle, on the other hand, is basically just a deeper version of a folliculitis, and this actually may need IND or antibiotics. And then a carbuncle is just a group of furuncles, so kind of all along the same spectrum. Okay, thank you for that. So I now know the difference between a furuncle and a carbuncle. I still don't know what that is on your face, though, Jeremy. I still don't know. You're also not allowed in my hot tub. Thanks, guys. The relevance in this is that there can be some simple, a.k.a. non-purulent cellulitis, and there can also be purulent cellulitis. A purulent cellulitis can involve an abscess, but it can also involve a furuncle or a carbuncle as well. This will be important when it comes to treatment, which we'll come back to talk about soon. Uh, Now on to my favorite diagnosis, erysipelas, which is a very similar but different condition to cellulitis. The difference is cellulitis involves the entire dermis, deeper dermal structures, in addition to the superficial dermis and epidermis and superficial lymphatics of erysipelas. Erysipelas can have blistering, vesicular lesions, and petechiae-like skin changes. Classically, erysipelas has raised edges, sharp, demarcated borders, and can have systemic symptoms. If one gets it on the face, treat it with clindamycin or Bactrim for MRSA coverage. If it's on the extremities, you can treat with Keflex. However, some of these patients do require admission depending on their comorbidities. Now, Craig, have you heard of Million Sign? I'm going to pretend like I have not just so you can tell me. Oh, okay. I'm going to sound very well educated and smart because I just looked this up, but... Uh, It's apparently with distinguishing cellulitis from erysipelas of the face because cellulitis should not involve the ear because there are no deeper dermal structures. So you do see involvement of the ear. It's more likely erysipelas. High-yield information right there. Now I feel like a millionaire for knowing it. (laughs) 
Going back to it, so cellulitis and erypolis are both more likely to develop in patients with peripheral vascular disease, peripheral arterial disease, and then previous skin breakdowns, such as something due to trauma or a previous overlying infection. Patients also who have diabetes are going to be more at risk of this. Now, physical exam findings we want to keep an eye out for, kind of your classic findings, is there erythema, pain, warmth, all of these are good, but they're not really specific. Other things that are more specific, though, are streaky lymphangitis or regional lymphadenopathy. Now, this indicates we do have an infection and it might be starting to spread. Unfortunately, labs don't really help us out very much, and blood cultures are rarely indicated. What you should do is ultrasound every single patient looking for cobblestoning, looking for any anechoic pockets of fluid, and looking for staph for neck fash, which is subcutaneous thickening, air, and fascial fluid. Now, just like all pediatric patients aren't just little adults, not all cellulitis is equal. Orbital cellulitis, perichondritis, the unvaccinated, and toxic shock syndrome. Orbital cellulitis, for example, needs very much special attention for IV antibiotics and advanced imaging like CT. Perichondritis now it will involve the whole ear except for the auricular lobule or the earlobe. This needs pseudomonal coverage and possibly an ENT consult. Now, unvaccinated children have increased risk of H-flu cellulitis, which has a 90% chance of having subsequent bacteremia. Not something we consider as much in vaccinated children. So what you're saying is that we should vaccinate our children? Yeah, I'd say so. Yep, it seems like a safe move here. All right, I'll make sure to tell all of my uh, patients' parents next time I see them that. Toxic shock syndrome will be discussed in more depth with necrotizing fasciitis and the crashing patient later in this talk. For now, let's just talk about how to treat cellulitis. Use your local antibiotogram for guidance. Over here, we give Keflex 500 milligrams four times a day for five to seven days. And remember the importance of ultrasounding? Our very own Dr. Vivek Tayel at CMC demonstrated in a study in 2006 that physical exam alone is not good for finding purulence, so ultrasound will often be changing your treatments. Purulent infections will either get doxycycline, Bactrim, or clindamycin, depending on local resistance patterns. However, not all purulent infections mean that MRSA bacteremia is causing them. Now, also remember special circumstances. Now, bites in general need to be cleaned and put on augmentin. So, dog bite, dog mentin. Water-associated self-tissue infections may need additional coverage. Vibrio needs doxycycline plus either a fluoroquinolone or a cephalosporin. Aramonas, infamous for causing devastating soft tissue infections in the tsunami region of Southeast Asia in 2004 and in New Orleans post-Katrina 2005, can be treated with ceftriaxone, Bactrim, or a fluoroquinolone. So when do we admit these patients? Because I know we do admit these patients from time to time, but it seems like we're hoping a lot of these people go home. Essentially, we need to admit if they need IV antibiotics. So the reasons for needing IV antibiotics are the patient cannot tolerate oral antibiotics for any variety of reasons. They're severely immunocompromised. They're having a SERS response. And controversially, if they're obese. We're obviously going to start IV antibiotics on anyone who is hemodynamically unstable or has altered mental status. Another reason to admit is for failed outpatient antibiotics. And what does that mean exactly? It means someone who develops fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea while on the antibiotic, or someone who has had no improvement in their symptoms within four days of starting the antibiotic. Something else that's very important here are discharge instructions. Now, you need to give the patient an idea of what to expect. Here's an example of good discharge instructions for someone going home on antibiotics. Hey, sir, so your redness may get worse on the antibiotics even after you've started them. 
In addition, early antibiotics may not prevent abscess formation. If you feel an area of fluctuance developing or something else that's concerning to you, just come back to a healthcare provider. In addition, if you develop fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, see a healthcare provider. The pain and heat should improve within about 48 hours of antibiotics, and the redness should start going down after about 96 hours. Now, little things you can do to help are going to be things like rest and elevation. Now, make sure you take every single dose of your antibiotic as prescribed, and if you're still having symptoms on your last day of antibiotics, come back and see a doc for a skin check. Wow, Russell, that was awesome. You're welcome. I'm definitely saving that as a macro for the future. We'll talk about more of the importance of discharge instructions later, but let's quickly talk about abscesses. An IND is actually ranked in the top three of most painful procedures we do in the ED, so we need to be nice to our patients. Consider things like a field block, nitrous oxide, or maybe some IV pain medicine with your local lidocaine. We do not need to do irrigation in the ED, and swabbing is rarely indicated. Get a swab if the patient has a lot of antibiotic allergies, has failed antibiotics outpatient in the past, or has multiple episodes of recurrent abscesses. And when do we pack? Almost never. When in doubt, do not pack it out. Packing has not been shown to help much, but it has been proven to increase pain. I'm sure you don't want to do that to your patients. What I recommend is where actually I trained in med school in Orlando was developed is the loop technique. Using a loop drain now for large abscesses greater than 5 centimeters or ones that are complex in the axilla or groin or if the patient's diabetic, you can loop pretty much everything except a peritonsillar abscess. So once you put in a loop drain, the loops are going to stay in place for about 7 to 10 days or I guess until it stops draining. In addition, you want to use sitz baths twice a day for 10 to 14 days until you see no more drainage. Be strict with giving antibiotics to these patients. Only consider if the patient is immunocompromised, meaning they're diabetic, they're taking chronic steroids, they're old, very sick. Other considerations if the abscess is greater than 5 centimeters, if they're surrounding cellulitis, or if they're a known MRSA carrier. Overall, use shared decision-making with the patient. This may help. It may just cause diarrhea. Use doxycycline, Bactrim, or clindamycin if you do choose to treat. Something else random, go ahead and give prophylactic antibiotics if the patient has known heart disease, something like two grams of Keflex an hour before IND. You don't want to cause bacteremia that could seed a bad heart. That's frowned upon. Some abscesses require special attention. Pilonidal abscesses can be done with an IND at bedside, but they'll need surgical follow-up as an outpatient as the recurrence of this cyst is nearly 50% and they are supposed to be extremely painful. In the same neighborhood, Perianal or perirectal abscesses may need surgical consultation and the OR for an IND. Patients should be complaining of pain worse while walking or during or right after a bowel movement. This is associated with Crohn's disease as well. So if a patient has Crohn's, you want to have kind of an increased index of suspicion there. Hydradenitis superativa. What you can do to treat this, this is a chronic condition, is try clindamycin cream. Other options include oral, doxycycline, or clindamycin, and then referral for surgery. If it's a Bartholin's gland abscess, forget the word catheter. Just go straight for a loop drain, and same thing with sitz baths. All right, guys, this is a lot of great talk about cellulitis, but let's move on to the most exciting part of this conversation, necrotizing fasciitis. This is a rapidly progressing, hard-to-detect, flesh-eating bacterial infection that was first described by Hippocrates in the 5th century. Now, surgeons during the Civil War have also talked about it, and we're still writing case reports about this today. Now, the U.S. sees up to 1,000 cases per year. This is relatively rare, but the scariest part of this is that the mortality rate is over 25%, and we misdiagnose it 75% of the time on first presentation. 
Necrotizing fasciitis is divided into three groups. Group one is polymicrobial, such as Fourniers or Ludwig's. Group two are strep infections, more often associated with toxic shock syndrome. And type three are aquatic organisms. For completeness sake, there's a fourth group made up of fungal infections. Risk factors for neck fasci include diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, obesity, chronic kidney disease, HIV, hepatitis C, IV drug use, chronic alcohol abuse, and trauma. What makes it so easy to miss is how nonspecific everything is. All of your physical exam findings that's actually helpful in saying, hey, this is neck fasci, is often a late finding when the patient is very, very sick. Here you want to concentrate to see if your exam is eliciting pain out of proportion or pain outside of the margins of your rash, bulla, skin necrosis, any superficial findings that you see. In addition, if you're starting to notice pallor, hypoesthesia, or crepitus, these are very, very late findings. It also isn't going to be that hard to recognize these patients because they're normally super sick, presenting hypotensive, febrile, and an organ failure. And that's where we often find our neck fasci patients. Labs are not very helpful because early neck fasci can have normal labs. Using the parameters of the LRINEC score. LRINEC score. Exactly. Uh, you assess for anemia, leukocytosis, thrombocytopenia with a CBC. You're also going to look for hyponatremia, hyperglycemia, and an elevated creatinine in your BMP. You're also going to look for things like elevated CRP, CK, INR, and lactate. Now, I'm just pulling this off the top of my head, but there was a study back in 2000 that showed that there was a 99% negative predictive value for patients with WBC counts under 15.4 thousand and a sodium above 135. Therefore, we can help use these markers to help convince ourselves when a patient does not have necrotizing fasciitis. But again, labs can be normal early in the disease course. X-ray is only going to be helpful if you see gas, which is rarely present, so X-rays really aren't that helpful. CT scans, too, are going to lack some specificity because there are other disease processes that could cause similar CT findings. MRI changes can often be seen where you see a T2 hyperintensity in the fascia representing fascial edema, but the MRI can also overcall the fascial thickening. Bedside or formal ultrasound may provide useful information by demonstrating hyperechoic foci with reverberation artifact at the site of the infection, aka dirty shadowing. Happens to the best of us. It warrants a special reminder, however, that ultrasound is not sensitive enough to exclude the diagnosis. So you are looking for signs if they're there, but if they're not there, it could still be early neck fash. And you're looking for positive subcutaneous thickening, you're looking for air, and you're looking for fascial fluid, aka staph, which is concerning for necrotizing fasciitis. Treat to cover for MRSA, gram-negative bacteria, as well as anaerobes. For MRSA, you can go with good old vancomycin, until we completely have VRSA, and we can move to other agents like daptomycin and linazolid. For your gram negatives, consider peptazo or meropenem. You can also use cefepime as well as ampicillin sulbactam, just anything that gets you that extra coverage. For anaerobes, you can use clindamycin, metronidazole, or the carbapenems. I would say use clindamycin, 600 milligrams Q8 every time. Why? Well, there have been studies that actually show mortality benefit, and this is likely due to the protein synthesis inhibition of clindamycin. Toxic shock syndrome plays a part in some cases of neck fasci, so clindamycin should be given every time because you're not going to know at the time of presentation. If you're concerned for Vibrio fulnificans infection, spending time in brackish water recently, coming in after shucking some oysters, then I'd recommend treatment with doxycycline, minocycline, or rocephin. IVIG is something else you can consider 
but more in the ICU, not as much in the ED. Studies have hinted that there might be a potential benefit, but nothing has actually been proven to give you a statistical benefit or a statistical decrease in mortality. Remember, we need source control here. So after your antibiotics are ordered, you are calling that surgeon, and you're going to have them evaluate the patient as soon as possible. Studies have shown again that time is tissue and have proven mortality has been increased with the lead presentations to the operating room. Patients will actually go on to have an average of 2.6 surgeries after being admitted with necrotizing fasciitis. Now here, we need to pause and discuss return precautions again and why they're so important. This is a rare, devastating infection and disease process that masquerades as a simple cellulitis, one of the most common things we see in the ED. A review of patients with neck fasci over a six-year period found that only 14% were initially admitted with the diagnosis of neck fasci. We need our patients to know what to expect from simple cellulitis, which we have already gone over. We also need to educate them to mark the border of the rash, or I usually do that for them. Explain that tenderness and edema beyond the boundaries of the rash would be other reasons to come back and get reevaluated. Also explain that rapid progression and ill-defined margins of involvement are more indications to come back to be seen by another healthcare provider. I agree with you here, Jeremy, because what we're doing here is that every cellulitis that we see we get scared that it's going to progress to necrotizing fasciitis. So our return precautions have to be things to prevent this devastating disease process. Like you said, we see cellulitis all the time. We don't see neck fasci all the time, and when we do, it's often because we missed it the first time. So these return precautions are going to be a huge thing, are going to help us kind of protect our patients from this disease process. In summation, put a probe on every patient you see. This is necessary to determine if you are dealing with simple cellulitis or if there's any purulence. will actually change how you treat the patient. And make sure, hammer that patient with return precautions and make sure that they understand your return precautions and make them repeat it back to you because oftentimes we explain them and they have no idea what you just said. But let them know what to expect if it's a cellulitis and what more sinister things to look out for in case of early necrotizing fasciitis. Finally, remember about your physical exam findings. Labs and imagings may not even be that helpful until it's too late. Have your antibiotic cocktail in your head for this patient. You're going to give them vancomycin for MRSA. You're going to give them Zosin for gram-negative coverage. And you're going to give them clindamycin for anaerobes and toxic shock syndrome. You're going to call that surgeon quickly because we need source control. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to us. We are finished here with this episode of Core Concepts in Emergency Medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty at CMC Emergency Department here at Charlotte, North Carolina at the J. Lee Garvey Studios. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. Seems he out. Peace out. Holla back. Man, man, around that.